Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Schaefer's Market Mashup. Hope everybody had a sunny and safe Labor Day weekend. It's been a week on Wall Street since we last talked, and the timing honestly could not have been better as SIBO Global Markets and I chatted about volatility. We're going to run it back today with a VIX roundtable. I've got Henry Schwartz, the Senior Director slash Head of Product Intelligence and aspiring Flowmaster with me. Kevin Davitt is back, the senior instructor of the Options Institute at SIBO, who you'll recognize from last week's conversation. And to really throw down the gauntlet, we also have Jason Rolke, head of institutional equity derivative sales at Citadel Securities. Henry, Kevin, and Jason, welcome and thanks for coming on. I'm thinking given you know the current predicament investors could be in right now, I figured we can expound on the conversation we had about the VIX and volatility from last week. We talked at length how volatility has remained elevated through much of 2020. So I want to go backwards and discuss some historical context and dive into other potential periods where we've seen this type of landscape before and how does this year measure up. Uh, Henry, how about you take that one first and Kevin, you can expand after him. Sure. So... It, it has been a, an astounding year, really. And, um, you know, we had a, a new all-time closing high for the, the VIX index uh, above 82 in March of this year. You know, that came after, you know, what had been, you know, a relatively kind of quiet uh, couple of years. I mean, you know, if you just go back to 2017, and the, it, it was one of the lowest volatility periods in, in decades. Uh, you know, 2018 and 2019 were a little bit more normal, but still a couple of spikes of VIX up to 30, but mostly kind of in the teens and, and low 20s. And then you had this year. So, uh, you know, obviously, you know, they're, they're, the pandemic uh, was, a, was a true black swan to most of the people that, that I talked to. And, uh, you know, we saw, I mean, we saw realized volatility, you know, get into 100 in uh, S&P in, you know, in February and March. So uh, things have calmed down, but, but, you know, VIX is still hanging out, you know, around 25 to 30, uh, you know, and, you know, you, you said it's been a week since your last, uh, since your last podcast, uh, you know, things change on a dime. We went from, you know, all time highs and, and just week after week of, of you know, this market bounce out of, uh, you know, what had been the, the lows in March to, you know, a couple pretty sharp sell off days, uh, you know, which, which got fixed back up above 30. So uh, it's, it's been a wild year. And, you know, obviously with, with uh, you know, a lot on the horizon in terms of politics and, you know, and kind of how, how the COVID uh, crisis plays out, it, it's going to stay very, very active this year. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kevin, what do you got? So I think Henry kind of hit it on the head with, those those handful of kind of salient points this year has been profoundly unique for a variety of reasons. Henry alluded to uh, one month S and P five hundred index vol, so on a realized basis, moving up very near a hundred in April. Now keep in mind that realized vol is trailing 
So the prior month, in the event that anybody forgot, was volatile. Um, you you mentioned like corollaries or other other points in the landscape where we potentially saw this. There are relatively few. Um, you you saw brief periods in two thousand eight where volatility on a realized and implied basis was similar. And then you kind of have to go back to like the 1930s for realized volatility measures that elevated. So you can kind of say that 2020 is keeping some questionable company. Um, now, in the middle of March, there were three consecutive sessions with up or down 9% moves in the S&P 500. That was the first since the 30s. There was a 12% drop. That's just staggering volatility. Uh, Henry mentioned the VIX index, which, which made all-time closing highs on the 16th of that month. I think it's important to point out to the audience that the VIX index is just that. It is an index, and it's not tradable, but there are VIX features and options which are tradable. Um, and maybe just to put a bit uh, a frame of reference on this for maybe some younger listeners, if you go back a decade, um, 2011 was arguably the last period where we saw persistent elevated volatility. And back then, the highest that one month realized volatility got was 48. And for a little more context, that was European sovereign debt, the Arab Spring, and the first and only U.S. debt downgrade. Mm -hmm. Henry also mentioned the, uh, the lack of volatility in 2017. So the volatility, volatility period is important, and it's, it's a meaningful market risk to essentially everybody. And I think that an understanding that long stocks is implicitly short volatility is a key point to make. And then eventually maybe understanding that there are tools in the form of derivatives, which we, we advocate for the informed use of, that could potentially help you manage those specific risks is important. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Jason, for another perspective, what are you seeing in regards to this current state of our global market? Since you weren't here for last week's discussion, I'll just open it up to you. Sure. Um, I'll highlight at first uh, that we've seen uh, – several hedge funds that have had a sole strategy of selling implied volatility, where their strategy was based upon the idea that implied volatility tends to run rich relative to realized volatility, and um, they're going to capture that spread, and, and the difference between the two is going to be their P&L. Um, and every vol spike that we've seen has been met with a, a pretty aggressive wave of selling. It's a function of their uh, lack of volatility selling in the marketplace that's allowed the, the spread to remain between between uh, implied and realized volatility that's persisted over the past couple of months. So even as recently, before we reached the, these past couple of weeks of volatility, even as recently as uh, four weeks ago, the implied to realized spread is as wide as we've seen it sometime. And I think that that's a function of the fact that we didn't have any natural sellers of volatility uh, in the marketplace, because a lot of them um, were, were wiped out in the in the spikes we saw in in March and April. 
So you, you talked a little bit about you know investor behavior. Kevin, is there such a thing as a typical behavior for these risk-on or risk-off environments? Um, is it somewhat predictable? Can someone ascertain and say, oh, if, if, if something is happening here, therefore then something else is happening here? That's a good question, and, and that's a, a lot easier to answer in hindsight, like so many things. But to take a step back or give you my perspective, I'll readily admit to being a believer in behavioral economics or behavioral finance. Uh, I think that history is kind of rife with examples of people, investors making decision, which in hindsight, again, look poor and typically emotionally driven. I'm somewhat reminded of the, the Mark Twain Mark Twain saying that history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. And while that's kind of cliche, like most cliches, there's there's kind of more than a bit of truth in there. So people get rattled when they see their net worth decline. That is normal. And if it does so with meaningful velocity, like we saw earlier this year, a 35% decline in the S&P 500 over the course of a month, that will compound the anxiety. And there have been relatively few significant declines in the broad market post-2008, which, which Jason just kind of referenced. And during an average calendar year, again, long time frames here, the S&P will typically experience a drawdown of somewhere between 12 and 16% on a peak-to-trough basis. And there hasn't been a whole lot of that. There's been relatively few of them in the past few years. And it is possible that we're moving into what many people typically refer to as a higher volatility regime, which of course time will tell, but not to belabor it, but an understanding that there are tools that you can use to offset or manage that potential risk kind of before the next one is, is, is the key here. I agree. Henry, you got anything you want to expand on there? Well, yeah, I, I would. Um, I agree with what Jason was saying, which is, um, you know, you certainly had. Uh, we used to go to these conferences, and there'd always be a panel on uh, hedge versus harvest, right? You wanna, are you going to harvest volatility premium by selling options, or are you going to hedge your portfolio kind of using options, uh, kind of the, in the old-fashioned way? And uh, there's been a there's there's been a, a sea change in in that. Uh, industry these these uh, tail funds and you know um and I, I think it's kind of been a healthy shakeup because you know we, we had a couple of years where uh selling options was consistently profitable and you had this uh you know, and, and interest rates were near zero so uh it was one of the only places you could go to make money so you know things have changed up now and, and you know what you know I, I agree with kevin as well in that you know i, I mean it I think there's opportunities out there. Uh, you know, single stocks, for one thing, are seeing a, a, a big resurgence in activity. It, it kind of crazy in a way. Uh, but also, I, I think that you know you ha you have some dislocations, right? Um, you know where uh, I mean, I think some people would look at the beginning of this year and say, you know, it, it seems like things there was a big storm on the horizon and nobody cared, and sure enough, that storm hit. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know. People using options uh, for for uh, all sorts of uh, you know 
purposes, you know, is, is kind of what makes this, this market so dynamic. Uh, and, you know, and we're seeing it, we're seeing it on kind of both sides, we're seeing, you know, the leverage from the, uh, you know, on the call side, uh, we're seeing hedging, uh, we're seeing kind of strategies change a little bit because volatility is kind of hanging out, you know, in, in this higher range. Uh, so uh, I was talking to a, a trader at a, uh, a big hedge fund and kind of asking him what they were doing, you know, if, if election hedging was kind of a thing. And he said, you know, it's very different this year, right? Because nobody's nobody's uh, certain that, you know, early November is going to be the, the end of this cycle. So that, you know, that he's looking at hedges that, that last you know, an extra month or two, but then you know, he's even a little bit nervous about whether, whether or not that might be a long enough duration. So uh, you know, just, just kind of you know, whatever your, 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 your motivation is, that basically I guess what I'm saying is at this point there are opportunities where I see people making money um, on both sides of, of things, which is I think a little bit more balanced than what we saw uh, you know, over the last couple of years where it was – a little bit more, you know, the flow was kind of all one way or all the other way. I agree. I saw a quote on Twitter today, uh, and it said the Wall Street Field of Dreams mantra, where if you trade it, we will build it. And, and that, I think, <laughs> crystallized a lot of things with, with how, how these strategies are available. Jason, are you seeing anybody employing certain types of ways to manage equity exposure or mitigate portfolio risk amidst all this? So I'll, I'll highlight a couple different things. Um, first is uh, to, to continue Henry's sentiment. When approaching something, it's got, you've got to determine whether it's a trade or a hedge, right? And those are often, uh, often um, confused by, by everybody. Uh, and, you know, what's put on as a hedge sometimes becomes a trade and vice versa. And, and the, the uh, idea of, of um, how you're going to structure something, I think the, the key to the beginning has to be decided whether to trade or a hedge. Um, I also think that the, the, the um, proliferation of the number of contracts that are out there, um, weeklies, uh, uh, S&P contracts expiring three times a week, it's changed the dynamic of how people approach uh, hedges. It used to be, um, you know, 10 plus years ago, probably even shorter, if you were going to hedge an event and the event was an election, and let's say it's not a potentially contested situation, you knew when the election was going to happen and you bought November paper and you held on to it and it was your hedge through the election. Um, now that you can hedge almost to the minute, uh, it's changed the behavior a lot. Um, so I think a lot of the nuances and, and the idea of being able to look at, at a vol curve and see the, the points in time to predict where people think an event is going to occur, it's gotten uh, much easier to pinpoint. Um, but it's also kept people out of the market for longer because there's no reason to own, own a decaying option, number one, uh, for two months if you're hedging a specific point in time. And number two, um, the, the uh, spot specificity versus the strike you're buying is an important tool. Um, if you're buying a two-month option, where spot is today, it might not be in that same place two months from now. And what was a 10% out of the money option could now be a 10% in the money or 20% out of the money option. So it, it enables you to not have as much decay and also just have something that's more apropos to what your your, your portfolio looks like at the time. Um, I'll also uh, mention that 
a strategy we've seen uh, a, a fairly large, uh, we think institutional investor employee in the market right now is uh, sold a lot of, of um, Delta One equity positions and bought options and bought calls and call spreads and the like. Um, and that is another strategy to employ to try and minimize risk in the market. Obviously, if you're if you're buying calls, uh, your losses are reduced to the amount of premium you spent. Um, so that's a, a, a risk mitigating way of looking at things. And we've seen people employing those strategies as well. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. Um, we, we talked about the timing of all this and how last week's episode came about. Another thing that I think was an amazing timing was, you know, we, you guys mentioned how the VIX index is usually negatively correlated with the S&P 500. Schaefer's senior quantitative analyst, Rocky White, yesterday uh, in his weekly indicator of the week, looked at the 30 signals in which the S&P 500 and VIX were positively correlated over the previous 10 days. Um, both indexes were positive 11 times of those 30. And he looked out ahead and saw that the S&P 500 index averages a 7.5% return with all 11 positive. And the volatility after these returns was even lower. How does one reconcile with that when you're looking at this negative correlation that is pretty rare? Wonderful. And thank you for the, the context and data around it. I think there's a, a lot of attention paid to that unusual relationship more recently. If you step back, understanding that over long time frames, there is a significant negative correlation between the VIX index and the S&P 500. That's key. That relationship, like any relationship, will ebb and flow. So the degree of that mostly negative correlation waxes and wanes over different periods. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. So earlier this year, and particularly during the acute phase of the sell-off, there was a typical negative relationship between the two. If you looked at a screen in the middle of March, you would have likely been confronted with a, a sea of red numbers and, and a green one for VIX and maybe bonds. But of late, so in, in late August, early September, a week or so ago, the relationship between VIX and SPX was positive briefly, handful of days, as you alluded to, and that's unusual. It's, it's highly unusual. And there are a number of dynamics that drive markets, but as Jason mentioned earlier, ultimately supply and demand are the linchpin, and there haven't been a whole lot of willing sellers in the derivative markets of late. So you had index option implied vol remain strong and move higher during that last leg of the S&P 500 move higher. And there was this divergence between nearly single digit realized vol and forward vols that remained kind of persistently in the mid twenties. And last week it was probably Wednesday was the highest ever VIX measure with the S&P 500 at all time highs. Okay. So you could make the case that in this situation, the option market was arguably kind of air quotes here, but more correct in that realized vol has picked up dramatically given this recent pullback. What that means, I forget exactly what time frame 
your colleague reference for forward performance? Did you frame? Six months. Six months. Okay. Um, I would be interested what that what that return uh, profile looked like on different time frames because again another reminder that like your sequence of returns matters uh this year has been unique but just being aware of when those unusual occurrences come to pass and what that might mean is empowering for anybody listening to this today i agree henry uh, sure. I um, it, it's, it's it's I do think it's, it's an unusual year more than you know. We, I think we usually say that, but I think this year obviously is weird. Uh, you know the um, I think supply and demand plays a lot into it. There there's um, a trader that I, I pay a lot of attention to, and, and he he's funny. He basically says that he thinks the VIX is a backwards looking indicator, right? Which which we're like, no no no, it's a for it's a forward volatility, right? But he says, no, basically, you know, VIX is going to, if you sell options and you get burned, then uh, you learn your, your lesson and you won't do it again. And so that the VIX will basically kind of float up because you'll have less sellers or maybe even you'll have buyers. Um, I, you know, I think this year um, you've, you've seen some of that, right, where, you know, we've actually had some realized volatility to the upside. Uh, that was that was actually happening, you know. Like it's it's just not a normal year where you know people basically panic when the market starts to go down. Right. Uh, you you had that flipped on on its head, especially you know obviously into March. That is what happened. It was it was a panic about uh, you know it was it was a flight uh, out of stocks and, and nobody uh, you know, people weren't weren't kind of thinking about investing. They were thinking about you know, survival of their themselves and their assets. Um, as the market turned around, we started to rally up, and then you know people uh, may find out that they're they're underinvested, and they start to panic to the upside. And panic to the upside is going to get you a, a rising you know, rising implied volatility, just regardless of what the market's doing. So, um, you know, I'll also say one thing that you know, we we I ran some data on the on the single stock side to see how many um, basically up days of for stocks with up volatility. Of implied volatility, and um, it was about doubled this year. So the, the the way we did the numbers, there were about a thousand liquid uh, single stock classes, and ETFs were included there too. And you know, normal um, for the past few years has been you know you only get a handful, you know, a dozen or, or maybe even two dozen that will have an up vol move on the same day that the stock's going up. Uh, it was closer to you know into the fifties uh, for most of this year. So okay, um, you know, there's there's some very very specific examples of you know a stock you know lifting 10 15 percent and volatility going up 10 or 20 percent with it and that that can happen especially if it's a deal name and everybody's kind of speculating that the swings are going to get bigger but we saw this in names that were not deal names at all it was really and that is where it comes back to the supply and demand like people are are paying up and paying up for their for their options and in, in this year it's been uh, particularly on the call side uh, and that's going to get exactly what you're talking about, which is ball up with the, with the underlying market. Interesting. Okay. Um, let's start to wrap here. I guess I'll close it out with one last question that each that all three of you can hit, and then I'll give you guys a brief second to, to plug anything you guys want to plug. But considering this recent options and futures flow that we touched on, 
what does this reveal for market sentiment in the near term and then looking a little further out into 2021? Jason, do you want to start? Sure, I'll go first. Um, one of the guys, uh, I think it was Kevin mentioned earlier, ball regimes, and that's something we've talked about for a long time now, for we even from the late 90s when I got started and uh, you kind of had um, bands of volatility for periods of time uh, with which regime were, were coming out of an abnormally low ball regime, which persisted for a very long time. I think a lot of that has to do with monetary policy and people starving for yield and, and selling premium like we've talked about. Um, but I'll mention that as we go into a new vol regime, if you look at, at the S&P uh, price level, the first time we saw S&P make new high, as we all know, the tech bubble in 2000, um, the, the period of high vol, high prices persisted for uh, roughly three years. So um, oh. this vol regime might be around until a, a new uh, vol seller comes to market or um, something else happens to, to um, you know, break the, the current location of where ball is versus prices. Um, but it, it, although it feels like things are super jittery right now and it feels toppy and everyone wants to talk to rampant speculation and all those types of things, um, good news or bad news, I'm not sure which, this can, can uh, be sustained for longer than a month, two months, three months. And, and it could be a ball regime where we're, VIX 25 and higher and continue to make new highs. Wow. That's fascinating. <laughs> All right. Who wants to top that? Uh, I can jump in. Uh, I, I think that's interesting. And I, I do think that, um, I think that this vol is going to stay high, you know, for, for the, the fact that the realized volatility has been much higher and the fact that uh, the amount of um, supply of volatility sellers, that, that fundamental harvester stream has dried up basically because of how those, you know, they got whipped around a little bit. Um, I, I, you know, one thing that I, I think is worth noticing is um, the, the implied distribution of returns that you see from the, the, kind of the call skew without getting too uh, vol math geeky for most, most listeners. <laughs> but, but, you know, when, when you start to see some really heavy speculation uh, in the upside calls, and nobody's paying any attention to the downside puts. Uh, and there's no demand there, but there is demand for the calls. Uh, you know, we saw this uh, over the last couple of months in Tesla and Apple and Facebook, and the names that uh, were getting very, very, uh, you know, frothy, overbought. However, however you want to think about it. these things that had run up forty percent in you know in a, a month or two. Uh, it, that that is worth paying attention to. I, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to scream that it's it's a giant warning sign. Uh-huh. I will. I will say that if you own some core holdings in stock, you know Facebook or Apple or, or whatever, and that skew kinks where you can basically collar that stock for a credit, and you don't do it, then um, you're missing an opportunity. Those opportunities don't come along that that often, and um, I think you got to you, you need to understand like, wow, this is pretty weird. The market is, is going to pay me for so much for my you know for the, some upside. That I get the downside coverage for free. Uh, that that's that's a very attractive trade. And and remember, it doesn't mean that you're out of the stock. It means that you're collared at some strike to the upside, um, and you can adjust it. But um, it's something that I've been keeping an eye on for sure. Okay. And last but not least, 
I, I appreciate that. I, I, I don't think that there's a whole lot that I would add uh, to that color. The, I value these opportunities, and maybe I would just reiterate a couple of points that were made earlier. I think broadly speaking, 2020 is going to be a perspective changer for a lot of market participants that perhaps became too accustomed to relatively low volatility. Again, time will tell there. Mm -hmm. I think Jason's point about defining at the outset whether a position is a trade or a hedge is, uh, while we're not giving any investment advice, is really something that listeners should keep in mind because if you're anything like me, aka a normal person, you will tend to be calisthenics mentally if something's working for you or against you. But if you behave more systematically and say, this is, this is why I'm taking on market risk or, or laying off some market risk and this is my time frame, I, I think that can be a very good habit to get in. And then the last thing that, that both uh, Jason and Henry have mentioned is that expectation, and it also kind of goes back to perspective, of the, uh, the future to look fairly similar to the recent past, maybe understanding longer time frames and incorporating some of that into your potential projections can be a worthwhile endeavor. So... Uh, Maybe we're moving into a very different volatility regime. Maybe not. But the, the one thing I heard was like, this is probably healthy. Market cycle and being aware of that is, is valuable, you know, whether you're just a, a passive long-term investor or a more strategic opportunistic trader. Be aware that, that shakeouts like these are a good thing and volatility can lend itself to opportunity. I couldn't agree more, and that's why I love these roundtables because I think this clarifies a lot of things that spook you know a retail trader who will pop on a news cycle and see all this volatility and, and, and get scared. It's, it's, it's not a scary thing, and thank you so much, all three of you guys, for helping unpack this. Uh, Henry Schwartz, Kevin Davitt, Jason Rolke can't thank you guys enough for coming on. Hopefully we can maybe get together again the next time there's a VIX spike. Maybe we can just do it each time there, there is one. Um, but otherwise, uh, thank you for listening to the Schaefer's Market Mashup, and we'll talk to you guys next week.